Hello and happy fall equinox. I'm recording this on the fall equinox. Just got into a conversation with the good old Jane Johnson, friend of the show. We talk about the state of the union, the Independent Living Network Union, and what we have been up to this past year, some of the highlights and uh, some of the successes that we've had. We talk about where we're heading into the next legislative session, things to be looking forward to, the hot issues. And I think most importantly, where we really take this conversation is, you know, the current state of affairs regarding politics and how much we are in a society now that seems to be more divisive than ever and what to make of the situation, how to navigate the situation. I'm not sure we came up with the specific solutions and a recipe on how to exactly do this, but certainly it's something that touches all of us. We don't have to go to Tallahassee or DC to see it nowadays or even social media. It's in our local school boards. It's in our town halls. It's uh, around the kitchen table. It's in our workplace. And it's something that regardless, if you're somebody that doesn't want to engage, I think in some way or another, it's going to be something that is going to engage you. And if you're somebody that's engaging in this, I think this is a very important conversation to have to really check ourselves, to look in the mirror. And I'm talking about myself and Jane, she talks about herself too. Like where are we also, you know, being that which we are crying foul in? Where are we paying tribute to things in ourselves engaging in vice? You know, I found this conversation to be cathartic and important to have and hopefully something that everyone can take a a little bit out of to figure out because all of it, I think ultimately this all starts with ourselves. You know, what are the thoughts that we're holding? What are the words that we're saying? What are the actions that we are taking? And at the end of the day, it is our sincere hope with this program and this show, no matter where we land, that we can find unity through disability. We all have a shared humanity. All of us will die, and all of us will likely get a disability. So no matter where you were born, uh, what race you are, whether you're male, female, or identify as otherwise, you know, what other political affiliation you have, disability doesn't care. And we need to come together and unite around disability and realizing that we have a shared humanity in this that we can see one another in ourselves. And this is a great opportunity. This is a great time for us to rise and to ascend and become the best versions of ourselves for each other, for our culture, for our society. This is a great opportunity to do this. Uh, we talk about you know, how it's a great opportunity to be a reset, to imagine the life that we want to, not working towards getting the life that we had before COVID, but this is a great time to reimagine the world re-envision what it can be for all of us and let's do this together let's create that beautiful world and vision with one another and let's do the good work of getting there within ourselves within our families within our communities within the world it is sorely needed and i look forward to being a part of that with you and with everyone and to being able to get there so i bring you the one the only jane johnson All right, all right, all right, Jane Johnson. We are back in the saddle. It's been too long. How you doing? I'm good, Tony. How are you? 
Doing very well back in the saddle. That's an Aerosmith reference there. So let's rock and roll <laughs> with this one, Jane Johnson. And what, what I'd like to get into is a bit of a State of the Union on what the Independent Living Network's been up to for this past year and what we have to look forward to in the upcoming year. We're recording this you know, at the end of September and with everything going on, gearing up for the end of the year and the beginning of the legislative session, there's a lot of exciting things going on. But wanted to first start, in case there's some new listeners here, orienting them on to, well, who is Jane Johnson? What does she do, uh, do and why does she do it? So let's start there. Well, I am Jane Johnson. I'm the executive director of the Trade Association that represents Centers for Independent Living all over the state. It's called FASL, which is the Florida Association of Centers for Independent Living. And I'm an advocate for the, the centers and a policy person. I work on regulatory issues. I serve as a liaison with the state agencies up here in Tallahassee. And then also, uh, you know, most importantly, working with the legislature, either public policy issues that are important to the centers for independent living or on funding issues. And I do it because it's the best job in the world. <laughs> it's the most fulfilling job in the world. I work for really great people who who inspire me every day with the work that they do. Each of the Centers for Independent Living is unique. They all provide the same core services, but then in addition to the core services, they each have found pathways to serve, do to do more services in their communities. And it's based on what those community needs are. They're very much creative sort of laboratories of, of service delivery. And they are chronically underfunded, so they do they do a lot with, with little, and it's, um, like I said, it's an, a continued source of inspiration because there are 15 different directors. They're all, they come to at this work with different perspectives, different philosophies, and different personalities. So some of the joy that I get is seeing all of those differences come together in a positive way. People, they, they're, they're masters at kind of leaving their personal agendas behind and focusing on um, the, the goal at hand and my mantra has become just the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing when they do that um independent living is advanced and we all benefit so anyway i know that's a lot but it is it's a great job and it's a great learning experience for me well we we've certainly benefited from your leadership your ingenuity your hard work your skills your talents what is something that you've learned about disability and your involvement over, are we going on two and a half years that you've been the director for FASL? Yes, it's, I'm in my, yes, about two and a half years. And it's be hard to, it would be more like, what is the, what's the biggest thing that you've learned? But I, I have learned that I, um, I practice ableism in my, myself. I don't identify as a person with a disability. And so a lot of the mindsets that I had were kind of, um, I don't want to say paternalistic because I'm a woman, so I'll say maternalistic, but um, I, I did not uh, fully appreciate dependent living when I first came to this job in the way that I do now. And I learned about the dignity of independent living and allowing people to make decisions that are their decisions and to take risks that may produce bad outcomes, but to to give people the, the freedom and the dignity to, to, to make those decisions, to own their, their own life. And I, you know, I came at it from the, from the same perspective. I think a lot of people who don't identify as a person with a disability would come at it that you want to help. And that's not what independent living is about. It's not helping in the caretaker sense. It's enabling 
working. And uh, my job has been less focused on helping and more focused on breaking down barriers for people, regulatory barriers or legislative barriers or funding barriers, opening up doors for new opportunities. And so that, um, that was a real reckoning for me because I didn't recognize in myself how much I came from that perspective. And, um, and it has really shaped me. I've learned a lot by listening to conversations and witnessing how people live their lives independently without being overly dependent or reliant on other people. So wow. it's, it's been amazing. Wow, thank you for that insight. What does practice ableism mean? Well, for me, it would be thinking that everybody wants to be able to live their lives like I can live my life. Mm. I can walk, I can see, I can talk, I can, I, so thinking that everybody wants to do, make corrections to their own lives to be more like me. Gotcha. Instead of recognizing that where they are is perfect. Yeah. They are perfect, yeah. exactly as they are. And that we need to kind of mold life around them so that they can be who they are without having to try to fit into an ableist sort of culture and ableist society, ableist institutions or, you know, or able-bodied institutions. So, you know, it's just, it's not, it doesn't come from a place of, of judgment or criticism of other people. It, it's, I think it's a natural instinct to, to help. And I think it's just, you know, working with people who live in poverty, you automatically want to assume that they want to have money, but that's not necessarily what they want. What they want maybe instead is is dignity or opportunity, but they don't necessarily want to be like the, the people. If if they're a have not, they don't necessarily want to be a have. They just want to be have more opportunity where they are because they're okay with where they are. We've learned this through um, looking at some of the racial inequality uh, issues that have come up over the past couple of years, where people in a class or in a, in a group that is considered privileged assume that other people in other groups are gonna to wanna to, want to be like them when that's not the case. They're very happy in their own identity. And it, but it's, it's easy for us not to respect that because all we know is what we know. And we think that, well, everybody would wanna be like this, but not really the case. Well, thank you. That's, I think one of the most clear uh, descriptions of ableism that I've heard. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm always seeking to learn more uh, about what it really means as well. And so thank you for sharing that. It also uh, reminded me of this concept of control of destiny. So this idea that, um, you know, if we are able to make choices in our life based on the opportunities that we have, we have more control, independence, and, and whatever that might be. And it might be, you know, not the ableist or uh, based on a, a culture of a different race or all these other things. It's more or less comes down to having the ability to make our own choices based on having uh, the equal opportunities that uh, anyone else might have. And it might look different, the choices, but it, it comes down to, at the end of the day, our control of destiny. Yes. Uh, well, Jane, thank you so much for that uh, introduction and education there. So th this is fall. We're entering a time where <laughs> I love metaphors with you, Jane, where we're, <laughs> we're, we're entering into time of harvest, right? So um, going towards gardening. So we got to always like be cultivating a garden, you know, preparing the garden, planting seeds in the garden, the care taking care of it the things that, you know, that grow out of the garden and harvesting it and everything else like that. So looking back into the last year in our independent living network, 
Um, what, what have you seen as, as far as what we've been able to do in that garden, things that have grown out of that garden, things that we've been harvesting, maybe some of the things that didn't take or get to grow yet? So, uh, yeah, maybe give, a, give us a good state of the union where you've seen us uh, over this past year. I'm going to start by calling out the contrast because there's been two parallel gardens that have developed over the past year. And one were seeds um, that were watered and fed by the pandemic, um, where we saw division and discontent come up and, and, and just come into full blossom, which was a real negative in, in other parts of sort of our, of our culture or our society, where people divided in terms of attitudes about masks, about vaccines about COVID in general. And so that was a, a garden of, of weeds and poisonous plants that, that came up. And I think the, the isolation and the, the pandemic basically was watered that and allowed that to grow. But then over on the other side, sort of concurrent with that all happening, the Centers for Independent Living hunkered down and worked on how they could make things better for people with disabilities and sort of ignored all the noise over there in that poisonous garden. And they planted seeds to increased capacity for centers for independent living. We had requested an appropriation to increase the amount of funding centers get, and we were, we received that appropriation. It's targeted to provide more transition services for people to live in the community. So that was something where we, we planted a seed, we watered it, we nurtured it, and it came into blossom. We also identified a program that was in financial straits, the um, James Patrick Personal Assistance Services Program, that provides a, a monthly stipend to people who have to pay for personal care assistance every day to be able to work. We requested an increase in the funding for that program and that came to, it bore fruit and that program is now better financed. The Centers for Independent Living are actively helping us to promote and market the program so we can recruit more people onto it and serve more people who are working and require personal care assistance. And then we also, um, people fed off of our vines in the legislature as we got to know new legislators and they learned about who the Centers for Independent Living are and what they do. One in particular, Representative Allison Tan recognized that, that the resource that centers can be for youth that are uh, transitioning from high school to college or jobs or post-secondary education. And so she added us into a bill that she had filed so that every school now is required to provide information to students about Centers for Independent Living so they can take advantage of that resource in their community. So, um, so the centers were busy. They planted mm -hmm. many seeds, they watered and nurtured them and fertilized them and kind of cleared the way so the sun could do its work. And we were successful on three different fronts. And July 1st is the start of the fiscal year. So the funding became available on July 1st for both the JP Pass program and for the Centers for Independent Living. And we're working with the Department of Education on the strategy for making sure that students have the information about the Centers for Independent Living. So all of those programs in the nascent stage of their implementation and going well so far. Well, thank you. Thank you for so uh, running with the metaphors. I love it, Jane. <laughs> We're going to circle back to that thorny garden uh, towards the end here, just to kind of get our take on it. It's an important thing to recognize and navigate for sure. But the uh, adult transitions, I find to be a, a really important piece So transitioning people out of institutionalized care facilities and back into the community to whatever extent possible. One out of three deaths from COVID came from people in institutionalized settings. 
just right there, I, I think, it, again, it makes another case for what is the best way that we can be caring for people that may need this kind of support or this help? Or do people you know, that are in these facilities, can they be better served in the community? And if so, how? So I'm really excited that we have this opportunity to do even more work in this area. And that is keeping the main thing the main thing for, for Centers for Independent Living. As you know, we were funded from the 1973 Rehab Act to do just that, to transition people out of institutionalized care facilities and, and back into the community. So that, I think, has been just exceptionally ripe fruit that has been born over this past year. And I'm excited to to get into efforts to make sure that that remains to be reoccurring funding or can become reoccurring funding in the future. You know, another piece that I think uh, that does tie into this, transitioning people out of institutionalized facilities and back into the community, goes along with some of the efforts that you've been a part of and, and have led in terms of getting the work done with the Department of Corrections where centers for independent living can be more involved in working with our prison systems and working with people with disabilities in those populations to get them prepared for when they do transition out of prisons and back into the community and to prevent recidivism and, and doing it in a way that helps to also bolster their employability in the community. Would you like to describe any of the um, actions that you've been a part of in that area and why it's so important for centers for independent living? Well, this has been a really, really exciting project that we've been working on. And it's a, again, that's another parallel project where we are working with the Department of Education to provide the required training that they have to um, give to every single inmate. It's 100 hours of training. It's in statute that everyone has to receive this training. And the, and the goal behind the training is to increase people's employability by working on soft skills, hard skills, knowledge of how to create a resume, go to a job interview, how to you know, conduct yourself in the workplace. And the Department of Corrections is good at what they do, which is keeping people behind bars safe. But they're not so good at working with people with disabilities. In fact, I'd say by their own admission, they don't know what they're doing. So they welcomed the offer of help that we made to them to see, to provide that training in an accessible format to inmates with disabilities. So we are in the final stages of the contract um, with them where Centers for Independent Living will go into prisons, they will hire instructors to go into prisons to provide that 100-hour training in an accessible format using the assistive technology or other accommodations that people need to be able to benefit from the information that's, um, that's being provided. That is very exciting. We, at this time, we have, all of the centers have expressed an interest. Some are more ready than others. So we're gonna start with three pilots that we hope to get launched in November. And we will learn from the pilots about you know, what worked and what didn't work. And then from there, we'll kind of perfect our product and then scale it up and scale it out to all of the prisons um, in Florida. So that has been really, really exciting. And the thing that makes it most exciting to me is the admitted need that corrections has for this. They realize that they just really don't know how to work with people who aren't able-bodied. So it, that's both sad, but also exciting mm -hmm. because that's centers for independent living exist. They step in those gaps that are, are created when systems, um, you know, when, when systems fail people. This is before, before release, we'll be working with folks. And then We've also gotten permission from the Department of or the Division of Vocational Rehabilitation to develop an alternative training program, which would be an employment training program for people with disabilities who have come out of prison. So it's specific to those people 
We are finalizing the proposal for that program. We hope to have that done by October 1st and then subject to VR's approval, then we'll be able to roll that out. And that would be not just for people that we've worked with inside the prisons, but it would be anyone with a criminal or a, a correctional background would be eligible for this training program that the SILs would provide. So, you know, kind of trying to create a, a warm or a warm handoff from mm -hmm. the prisons to the community. We've also gotten VR's commitment that they will do the eligibility determinations before release so that people, when they are released, they don't have to wait eight weeks to find out if they're eligible for VR services, because a lot of times that's what we lose people in that gap while they're waiting, they're unemployed, they're frustrated, and they become discouraged. So we're really trying to look at some of the, if I can call it social determinants of employment success, which are, you know, it's not just having the skill sets and not and the knowledge and the job offer. You've got to have those social, the, the social determinants are your housing, your self-confidence, your network of mentors or peers that can encourage you in your journey from you know prison to employment. So that training program combined with the training we'll do inside the prisons, we're hoping we'll give those those individuals that those those social the EQ and the IQ that they need to succeed in employment. I love that you're hitting on, you know, emotional and intellectual intelligence there that is often needed. So I um, also want to go back to, you know, the incarceration of, of people in our society as well. So when people have talked about, especially with uh, racial inequities and social justice, it really one of the flashpoints, obviously, was, you know, police brutality on people and the videos that were coming out and et cetera. I think a part of this that doesn't get as much attention is the over-incarceration of our citizens, especially those that aren't white, and how much we warehouse so many of our citizens in, in correctional facilities, and this is a high, high percentage of uh, people that aren't white that are in there. So this is, I, I believe, like one of the, the biggest, most pervasive issues when we talk about uh, social inequities and the justice system. And so the percentage of people then that are incarcerated who have a disability, I've seen upwards of 75%, like three out of four inmates um, having a disability, physical or mental disability. And so we're looking at a high percentage of non-white incarcerated individuals with a disability um, that then come out of prison. Okay, so when we look at unemployment rates, you know, uh, more likely to be unemployed if you have a disability. Um, unemployment rates are higher in non-white populations and are higher in populations that have a record who are incarcerated. So those are like three checks against a person uh, when they're coming out of prison to get a job. So the fact that you're helping to lead a charge that is gonna help better prepare people who are incarcerated for employment when they do get out of jail is huge. But I, I imagine there's other systemic barriers too that we really gotta address and advocate for during this transition. So imagining that you know, we have a really great training program that helps to you know, build the intellectual, emotional, social skills of an individual. Um, once they transition out of prison, what, what are other systemic levers that we need to really be pulling so that these people can be successful and not go back to prison? 
Well, I think housing is always going to be an issue. And we know it's, I mean, affordable housing is an issue every in every county in the state. So that's um, something where most of the SILs have done a lot of work in their in their communities. And so, the, uh, but identifying housing options that are sustainable. Like a lot of people come out of prison and they have a temporary place to stay until they kind of get their bearings. That it will always be an issue. I think untreated and maybe undiagnosed mental mental health disabilities too, or medication compliance, those are big issues for people who will come out and just have unregulated behaviors or just, you know, if someone is bipolar and they're not taking their medication, they can have all of the knowledge and, and skills they need to become employable. But if they can't manage their behavior, then they won't stay employed. So, but, and a lot of times for people, because mental illness often creates isolation or it has, people tend to isolate themselves when they're not feeling right. I think creating peer mentors or peer peer support groups so that people can hold each other accountable and also normalize their situation so they don't feel that there's something wrong with them, that there's this is you know, organic brain disorders or, or normal and natural is part of life and more people have them than, than not, so, or people have them than most people realize. So I think that trying to help give, give supports like that to reduce some of the stigma. There's stigma, of course, associated with having been incarcerated but then you don't that stigma when you have a disability or you have a mental illness or mental health issue, <clears throat> people can really feel disempowered sure. and lose self-confidence. I think self-confidence in adults is underrated. I think we need to pay more attention to it because people, if you don't, if they don't feel good about themselves, then they won't take risks and they won't see them be able to see themselves being successful in a work situation. And they also will, you know, a lot of maladaptive behaviors come from a feeling of self, not feeling good about yourself. And so you want to hurt other people to kind of sure. balance the, the equation or, or something. So I think helping people feel that they're worthy and that they, they have value is really important to setting them up for success in their relationships and in employment. That, that, that's an excellent point there. And I do think that is an understood issue with adults and confidence in its relationship to, to so many things uh, that are out there. And, and so what would we say then to like, say, employers who, you know, maybe get a resume from someone in their application, they're disclosed that, yeah, they got a record um, and et cetera. You know, I think that's one of the barriers there. We're America. The cliche is a land of second chances, but is it really? You know, so I guess like one of the things that um, I'm concerned about too is just the ability for people to have that second chance when they come out from somebody that's hiring an employment. What What are some ways to to address that side of the coin? Well, one of the things that the Centers for Independent Living have committed to do with Department of Corrections is create a certificate of completion for this employment readiness, readiness training. So each of those applicants or those individuals who can't come through the training will have that certificate to at least attest to the fact that they've gone through, you know, a hundred hours worth of, of training in preparation for their job placement. And I, this would be something that the centers could consider doing, but if you have someone you've been working with, if they've gone through your employment readiness training and you feel good about them, then the centers, could act kind of like a backup bank, you know, where, you know, you can have a guaranteed loan where the loan is given to the person individually, but there's another institution that's willing to back up the loan mm. um, in, in the event of default. And it's, that's a really rough metaphor, but if there's, if the Centers for Independent Living can be a reference or, or can attest to this person's character, but then also offer to 
continue in a relationship with that person to yeah. provide that peer support or that mentoring or that, you know, I think one a, a really wonderful thing that we could look at going forward as more and more people are served in this program would be to create support groups of formerly incarcerated people with disabilities who get together, uh, you know, almost like an Alcoholics Anonymous model, where it's just they all come together, they all acknowledge their past and talk about what they're doing to stay clean, to stay right side of the fence, so to speak. And I think we know we need that as people, that there's a human, a human need. It's not just because they've been incarcerated. And I think if we can you know, help to facilitate those, those support groups, I think that that would go a long way, both to encourage, but also to discourage behavior that would send them down the wrong path because anyone coming back into the community that they left is going to face triggers yep. for you know, that would precipitate a return to the behavior that got them in trouble to begin with. And we need to help them identify the triggers and then avoid the triggers or come up with coping mechanisms to manage those triggers um, if you can't completely sort of remove them from your life. And it's it's not that much different from uh, you know, substance misuse where you if you know you have a proclivity towards that, you just have to try to re-engineer your life and develop response mechanisms and dis disciplines to avoid going back down that self-destructive path. So I think just you, you know, trying to create not the science, but you know, identify some best practices in that area where we can borrow from other psychological interventions and, and apply it to, to this population. I don't think that people who've been in prison have gotten the full benefit of what people who would have, say, a newly acquired spinal cord injury or um, an addiction. There's a lot of treatment um, and science around those things. There's not a lot of treatment and science around people coming out of the correction system. And I think we don't need to create the new science, but we can borrow from what's already there because at the end of the day, everybody's all still human beings. Yeah. I really love your answer, and I look forward to working on that solution with you. And I'm talking about when people who are incarcerated get out and they return to their you know, same social and environmental uh, situations that they came from, and how do they build resilience towards falling back into some of the habits or behaviors and patterns that got them incarcerated in the first place. And you know, one of the reference points I have is I work for an innovative program out in Colorado, and we flew in kids from uh, kids, I say kids from 12 to 20, you know, from New York to LA out into the Rocky Mountains and engage them in, you know, weeks long activities that were really designed to get them out of their shells and into a place that they would open up. And, and many times, you know, we would hear from them how they didn't want to uh, go back to a lot of those behaviors and patterns yet, you know, they were going to return to their neighborhoods and building social support systems within uh, where they were going. So we often were connecting with either, you know, faith-based or other role models that they had in the community to build those support systems for them to also, you know, have as an antidote for some of the social systems that were influencing them to do things that they shouldn't was a huge one. Any environmental things that we can intervene, intervene on is huge. And so I really like that piece. So you know, I hear a multi-level approach here. So while they're incarcerated and as they come out, we're really working on individual level factors, educating them, you know, building knowledge, building skills, building confidence. Those things are very important. But also when they come out, the social supports that are needed, any environmental controls that we can have are huge. Working with employers, working to get housing, very big, I think that are, are important. I also see another piece of this, which would be 
social, cultural, normative attitudes towards people who are incarcerated. How do we address that? I saw this in COVID as well, where we would see, you know, COVID, we're very high in the prison systems. And, and I would hear you know, disclaimers uh, and that really underscored a lack of empathy. And, and so I think it, there's commonly a lack of empathy that people have uh, in our society towards people who have been incarcerated. What would you have to say to people that might not have the empathy for people that are incarcerated or at least to the cultural normative attitudes towards people that are incarcerated? Because I feel like that's also a piece here that, that needs to be addressed. I don't think there's any one thing you can say to change people's mind, but one thing that I always, um, when people get dismissive quickly, I like to say that, you know, when someone does something bad, it's because it's most likely because something bad happened to them. And I think that that's, you know, if, if, if you can get people to realize that bad behavior is so often a symptom of some hurt that was, just, you know, incurred by that person. Now, some of it is, there is, there is organic brain disorder where you have a deviant personality, but for a lot of people, the, the bad behavior is a compensatory strategy to get attention or to, um, to sort of channel anger, or in, in some cases, it is a lack of self-esteem. They can't even see themselves being a good person because they don't believe they're good. Mm -hmm. They can't even, they, they don't believe they deserve to have a good life because, because of who they are. So I think, I don't know how you convince someone to be forgiving, to, to give another chance to, um, I think, of course, the SILs have to model that. They have to show what's possible mm -hmm. by, um, you know, and I will say that we've seen the centers evolve over the past year or so, where initially people were afraid to work with, you know, they, they have vulnerable employees and they don't want to be working with violent criminals. Not, not all criminals are violent and not all violent criminals remain violent for the rest of their lives. So I think being models of, of restorative justice, of showing what is possible, what can happen. But, you know, Tony, that's a tough, it's a tough one. Yeah. I think that's another changing piece. hearts and minds. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, and so for me, you know, I look at it where I try to come at it and this is for me and this is personal. You know, I recognize that, you know, I have had a, a, a lot of advantages in my life, a lot of privilege. I, I have two loving parents and, and loving siblings that were supportive access to really quality education very nurturing environment. And so it was easy for me to make decisions that uh, didn't involve, uh, you know, necessarily things that would have been harder for me to make decisions about. So for instance, if I came for, from an environment that I, I didn't have two parents that cared about me, and in fact, um, during very pivotal times in my development, uh, there was no one there, maybe there was even abuse and neglect, um, poverty, uh, didn't have the access to a quality education, you know, was constantly failing in school, perhaps had social peers that, you know, were encouraging me to not do the right things. And, and because I didn't have that family, I was wanting that social approval, that need to be accepted by my peers, doing things that maybe I didn't want to do, but want, but more or less wanted their approval, um, you know, didn't need to more or less like have to steal to eat, you know, just basically survive. You know, I wasn't faced with those choices because I did come from all these advantages. And I love the quote that says, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it's not to say that you know, people are ignorant and don't know what they're doing. It's just that people are in situations that, you know, more or less are just, it's their, their life and it is what they know. A lot of this is out of physical and social survival that decisions are being made. So how can I even fathom what it's like to be in someone else's shoes that didn't come from the advantage that I have? 
And so, I don't know, that's kind of where I take it for myself to cultivate that empathy and uh, to hopefully demonstrate it through the actions that I take and willing to give you know somebody more chances if they come from a background that isn't like mine. So, yeah, it's a, it's, yeah. It's a tough one. It is a tough one. That's, yeah, I wish I knew the answers. I don't, I just know that um, we can't give up on yeah, trying to- That's them. right. <laughs> yeah, we got to lead by example. And so, you know, I think is, this is a good segue also into um, what you were alluding to earlier, you know, the SILs having a, a win on the board this past year was that we, through our, the legislation, now have the ability to get into schools um, and to advocate on behalf of students and parents with disabilities. And so, of course, you know, we hear that uh, unfortunate cliche, the school to prison pipeline, you know, kind of now thinking more prevention based. How can we prevent unnecessary incarcerations, uh, which I think is a huge piece of this you know, puzzle as well. But now that we have uh, more flexibility and ability to get into the schools and to advocate, where do you see some of the um, promise and, and potentially some of the obstacles in, in this ability that we now have? And as we move forward and look forward to getting more involved at the school level? Well, I think, you know, piggybacking on what you just said about your own privilege growing up in a, in a healthy family, so if you needed an IEP in school, your parents probably felt pretty comfortable going to this, those IEP meetings and advocating for what they, you needed, and they probably knew what you needed and they could articulate it. So in work I've done here locally in um, the second judicial circuit with juvenile justice, there are a lot of poor, uh, predominantly African-American families who feel stigmatized um, in school. They didn't have a good school experience themselves, so as parents, they're not comfortable advocating for their child who may be struggling, or there's a stigma associated with disability. And so, and they want to own the disability that, that their child may be exhibiting. So I think what, what the SILs could do through people like you who are much more comfortable in that environment is advocate alongside those families, because there is a school to prison pipeline. You do see youth who come from marginalized families, low socioeconomic uh, status families, whose parents don't feel comfortable advocating. They are intimidated by the jargon that gets thrown around at those IEP meetings. There's a lot of technical language, a lot of acronyms. And so a parent who hasn't maybe even graduated from high school themselves is not gonna feel that they have agency at that table. Mm -hmm. So if, if a SIL representative can be at that table alongside that mom who doesn't even understand what the IDEA is, if someone could be there as their that mom's representative on behalf of that young man who is not able to read on, on grade level, is getting bored, is feeling intimidated by that so that he lashes out, he's violent towards his classmates, or he's disruptive, or he's truant. All of those things are setting him up for failure in high school and you know, post high school, which then you know, makes him much more receptive to a criminal life because he's, he's gotta find money to pay mm -hmm. you know, his living. So I think that the promise there would be using, leveraging the, the, the capacity that's in a center for independent living through the staff and their lived experience alongside families who might not have, um, might not have had the privilege of that same experience so that they can help them get what's best for their young, for their children. You know, some parents might not know what autism is. Mm -hmm. They have ADHD, but they don't really understand what it is. And so they don't, they don't know how to understand how that is impacting their, the behavior that their, their son or daughter are exhibiting in the classroom that's, you know, so I just, I think there's, there's a huge opportunity to leverage what the SILs have within their, their staff to help youth that um, don't have that same advantage. 
So that's that's what the promise. In terms of the obstacles, I'm not going to say because I don't want to think. I don't want to think there's any. We're going <laughs> to we're going to fall down. <laughs> right on. I love that attitude. It is very exciting. You know, of course, SILs have been in schools for a little while. Uh, I'd say with that, like us, like our center, we got a high school high tech program. We're, we're predominantly at the high school level. Um, there's more high schools in our area that we're not involved with. And, and this gives us capacity to be able to get into those schools. I really also think it opens the door pre-high school, you know, really reaching students, youth, family at a much earlier time in their academic development. I think that's that's really exciting as well because I, I think there's a whole lot there. You know, when we talk about transitions uh, in our field, we're usually talking about from high school to post-secondary life, but I also see transitions from elementary to middle school, middle school to high school. I feel like there's a lot of gaps there that we would be able to help fill and, and help you know students and parents navigate and transition in those areas. You know, early childhood too. You know, oh my goodness, like I'm sure you're well aware of the research uh, between developmentally between zero to five reading levels that kindergarten and first grade are just like very highly predictive of so many academic and, and life outcomes, whether or not they'll even graduate high school, likelihood of being incarcerated, likelihood of being employed, likelihood of developing a chronic disease, and even lifespan based on reading levels at such an early age. So I, I, I just feel like there's just so much potential here from, from this piece of legislation. And I think we're at our own infancy in, in being able to really tap into it. I'm so excited, so thank you any of the legislators that were able to help to get this into place. And I look forward to really growing this out and seeing what it can become. These are great seeds to be planting. I look forward to pouring a lot of water and sunshine on them. That's right. <laughs> Since we've kind of returned back to our, our, our garden analogy, um, you know, we talked about the COVID pandemic really leading to a, a garden of thorns. And before we get to that garden of thorns, I want to talk about some of the flowers that uh, Centers for Independent Living have cultivated in this area. So I know you were very helpful in, in discussions in Florida Department of Health and being able to get vaccinations um, approved to be distributed at Centers for Independent Living. So many centers opened up their offices to receive people with disabilities, have all the accommodations that were necessary for them to be able to receive the vaccination, to even come back for follow-ups, to also help facilitate uh, community-based vaccinations so people that were homebound to be able to do that. So please give us uh, you know, any of your thoughts and, and lessons learned from that experience, because as far as what I know, very few centers nationwide uh, were able to have such a you know, capacity to be able to do something, which, of course, by the way, people with disabilities were, uh, are much more uh, impacted through negative outcomes of COVID. So this has been wonderful. Right. Well, and I have to first and foremost give the, the kudos to Beth Meyer at the Florida Independent Living Council because she really was the the liaison back to um, the Emergency Operations Center. And it, so it wasn't as much the Department of Health as it was the Emergency Operations Center because they controlled the sort of the supply and the distribution of the vaccines. But it was through working with them over the past several years through various hurricanes that we cemented that relationship and we built, we get, earned their trust as essential community providers who, when the opportunity became aware, and I honestly don't know who it was who first said, can we be vaccination sites? But when the Centers 
asked Emergency Operations Center if we could do that, they immediately said yes, because they knew we were trusted partners who knew what we were doing, who could follow through and would be reliable. And so that was just a, a really exciting thing. And I think the biggest lesson there is the importance of being, of, of establishing partnerships and working together and, and earning trust because to do a project, but also you know, playing that short game and the long game with an eye towards in the future, we can take this same model and use it here and use it here. And so just like you talked about with transition and how a lot of that used to just occur with nursing homes and hospitals to home, and now we're, we're looking at it in schools, but I think that whole transition model is built on certain fundamental principles and service delivery components that um, can be, in, you know, can, can be used in many situations. So we shouldn't be limiting the work that we do to sort of like lanes of service. We should be thinking, you know, bigger picture about how we can take that model and apply it anywhere. And so you know, past year it was COVID uh, vaccinations, and you know, earlier in COVID it was meal delivery mm -hmm. for people who are homebound or who couldn't get to the store. So there's durable medical equipment post post disaster same thing so i think a lot of lessons to be learned there about you know building a system an operating system that you can put new software into to perform different tasks but you've got that you've got the rules engine in place you just need to um, change the algorithm for a different output love it you know with this you know like you were saying earlier um, you know the covid pandemic has really uh, provided ripe and fertile ground for misinformation tribalistic believing, you know, whether you're on a vaccination side or the other side, if you're unmasking or an unmasking, um, our freedoms, our liberties, and, and with social media, you know, helping to fuel a lot of this. This is a, a turbulent time and you don't have to go to Tallahassee to see this play itself out. As you well aware of, the school board meetings are now a very common place for a lot of this discourse. I mean, nationally, school board meetings seem to be a flashpoint now for, for whether it's vaccinations or, or culture wars regarding critical race theory or, you know, all these other places seem to be flashpoints for it. So it's not necessarily isolated to the political realm where the legislation happens. It seems to be almost everywhere nowadays. And so somebody that has been steeped in politics for as long as you have that maybe have you know seen signs of this but maybe not on a scale that it is now i'd imagine you have some insights for some of us that are in it that are experiencing the force of either being offended and wanting to offend other people the force of just not understanding where people are coming from this use of tribalism as a way to divide people cancel culture not just being in terms of you know, the woke movement anymore. This is like, if you're not a part of a tribe, uh, if you're not with us, you're against this mentality and, and how people are being, you know, canceled. Uh, and uh, this seems to be super rampant, a lot of emotions. What advice do you have from us based on your experiences on best how to navigate these waters? You know, it's, it's really um, tough, but I think you've nailed it when you said tribalism. It's almost like, you know, 20 years ago, we went into the Middle East to try to spread this democracy and to bring people together and to have participatory government, you know, to, to share our, our ideals where every vote counts and every voice matters. And instead of turning those governments around, we brought those that tribalism back home with us. Like it's, and so now we're more tribal than they were. It seems like we're, we've, we've forgotten the fundamental principles of democracy 
our equality and you know the right to vote, the right to have an opinion, the right to speak freely. So I, I think the only advice I would have is to try to find those issues that can supersede um, division. And it's you would think that a pandemic would be one of those issues where we would want to be thinking about the greater good more than we would want to think about which side are you on, are you this or pro this. So um, I think this is going to be one that isn't solved easily because there are too many people who are profiting from the divisions. And I don't mean necessarily, I mean, some are profiting financially, but some are profiting politically. But I think it's there's a cynical sort of force at work where people realize that if we can divide the population and get people take these divisive issues and get people to just you know, to be in our camp and vote our way um, on these issues, then we don't have to worry about anything else. It's, it's, it becomes a much easier way to um, to campaign because you, you split the line down the middle, you're either this or you're that, but you can't be anywhere in between. And I think people who aren't content with that need to become in-betweenists. <laughs> we need to you know, <laughs> find those find those common elements and try to rise above and but we've got to get that message out we have to reinforce that we have to um i've seen too often people accuse the other side of the very things that they're being themselves without realizing it you know they're profiling they're they're looking at someone who represents you know the, the right side and and saying you know they're this or this and this because they're they're assuming how they vote. They're assuming what they think just by the way they dress or the car they drive. Sure. But that's profiling. And that's the very thing that you're accusing them of doing the, you know, to, to you or to a person of color. So it's, I think we have to um, really be careful to examine ourselves and, and make sure we're not doing this, the very same thing that the other side is doing without realizing it. Because it's it's bringing out the worst in both both segments of the population. And it's 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 got it's going to take some real honest self-examination and hard work. It's not going to yeah. be easy. We're going to have to have painful conversations. We're going to all have to make compromises and give a little bit. But absent any sort of central leadership moving people in that direction, it's this is going to have to come from the grassroots. This you know, there's no politician I can think of who's trying to bring people together. Both sides are trying to divide. So I think. Um, you know, one of those velvet revolutions like that didn't ultimately succeed, but you know, something that comes up from the people, by the people, mm. uh, not to sound trite, but that's really almost a level at which I think, or the only level at which I think change, meaningful change is possible because it, they're so dug in. Yeah, and I agree. The in-betweens, you know, not being East Coast or West Coast, but being from the Midwest, maybe, you know, not <laughs> this tween time, this in-between, like, uh, the independent thinkers, the, the the people that aren't going to be sucked into, you know, this divisive thinking, having the char character. Go ahead. But it's not enough to be in an independent thinker. You also have to be a bridge builder uh -huh. because ultimately you have to bring people back. We don't want a third faction. We want people to. We want a both and culture where mm. we can be accepting um, that you know both sides have the right to. Like there's, it doesn't have to be wrong and right or or yes and no. I think it's got to be both and we have to be that melting pot again that we we were when we first came as, together as a country and and we valued that melting pot we valued the diversity and, and we no longer do that and but I think we can get back there but it again it's going to take bridge building and um and just acceptance and tolerance both and I I like that thank you Jane in that acceptance and tolerance and how do we be tolerant of intolerance Right. 
because like it seems like a lot of that's going around and and, and um, it's both I think also coming from all of us in some ways like when you mentioned hypocrisy it's not just in other people but all of us I think can be you know guilty at some point of our lives being hypocritical and well, yeah you know I mean think of the th think of the ways you described people who think politically differently from you just we we write them off we have certain like words that we throw at them and we immediately throw everybody into that same bucket we've just exactly what the other side did to the to us so yeah so we are uh we have to like i said self-examination is so important was that plato or aristotle who said an unexamined life is not worth living um we really do need to do that we need to stop and it will be painful and really uncomfortable because we won't like what we see but until we see it, we won't be able to address it. That's right. Look it in the mirror first. I like I like where you're at. Start with ourselves. You know, where are we being hypocritical in our own lives? Where are we falling short? Where have I chosen uh, to be offended? And then because I feel offended, I feel like I have the right to offend other people. I think that's a trap right there is the the force of offense. And right. and it just seems like it is a it's a it's like a snake eating its tail. It will never be go anywhere necessarily good, uh, and and it seems to work in politics, uh, and I hate admitting this, but I seem where offending you know getting people all offended seems to galvanize people to create an enemy in the other, and is a is a rallying cry, and then people start doing things to offend other people on a political level. It seems to work, but then in real life, it is so destructive. It doesn't work outside mm -hmm. of politics. Even like when we try to advocate for disability rights and, you know, don't let this and that and the other policy pass, I can see where we would get sucked into political maneuvers that are meant to offend other people or to galvanize our side through being offended. Uh, in that, and I worry about that force because on a political level and a policy level, I've seen it work here or there, but in real life and our day-to-day -day experiences in humanity, such a destructive force. And it is even so in the disability community because you have the DD, you know, you have different factions within the disability community and they will deride one another. I mean, I, I've heard it where parents of, of young people with intellectual disabilities, they take a, 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 their course and they make decisions on behalf of their, their children that they think are right. But then people in another cohort of disability will call them, uh, you know, they, they'll, they'll criticize them for that, that they're, they're taking away their rights. Or we have to be able to allow people to make their own decisions. It, it has to be a both and. It's, it's, you know, it's that way is not what I would do, or that's not what I want for my life. But I'm going to give you the dignity of making your own decisions and not criticize you and try to polarize within the disability community. But I think, but I do see that, you know, from where I sit, where there isn't a clear, we don't have all the disability groups don't come together as a coalition and advocate mm -hmm. together. You know, we put down our markers or and, um, we pick sides and that's divisive and unproductive, but we do it. Yeah, in a round world, how can we have sides, right? And, and so like these cliches that might not be helpful or useful, um, but you know, one of the things that, you know, I think I'm trying to figure ways of strategies of how we can bring people together, do the both ends of this. And I think, you know, sometimes asking questions, the right questions of people will, you know, help me understand how, you know, you think this way um, without challenging to the point to where people are defensive about how they stand, perhaps. I've also um, have been trying to take a stab at what's called moral reframing. You know, so understanding the, the moral compass of people, 
Um, because I, I do feel like most people come from a good place, but then go awry and askew. And, and if we can go back to kind of where people's moral compasses are and to see how what they say, do, or act aligns with that moral compass. You know, for example, I've, I, I've seen, you know, locally here, um, you know, there's a mandate right now in play that would require all city employees to get the vaccine. And, and a lot of, you know, people that are, you know, out there and against it, you know, say, hey, it's our freedom. We want to be able to have the choice to be able to do this. And uh, certainly freedom's one of their moral compasses and is local control of government. And they don't want overreach of the state or the feds but they're city employees. Technically, they are government workers. And it's the most central, you know, local government that they respect. You know, they want more local control and the freedom to be able to decide if your paycheck is coming from the taxpayers of the citizens and they pay your health benefits. You know, you, your, your freedoms are kind of limited. And, and what does freedom then mean? It's, I don't know. It's just like, can we, can we get to where people's moral compass is? Can we be able to unwind that and be able to have a discussion and a better understanding? And, and like you said, with ourselves too, right? Like, where are we being hypocritical? And I love the, the best definition of hypocrisy I've come across is, you know, hypocrisy is vice paying tribute to virtue. Vice paying tribute to virtue. And here I am paying tribute to all kinds of virtues, but, you know, I'm full of vice too. I don't know. I'm just talking out loud and, and going around in circles myself with this because I see I see myself being a, as much of a pro, potentially a part of the problem as as anyone. Well, Tony, I would never say that about you because your natural instinct is to try to find peace and to and to, and to bring people together. You are definitely a, a uniter, not a divider. Um, so no, I, so that's you're not. I don't. I would not ascribe hypocrisy to you ever. But um, but I also just. This is a, it's such a huge problem. It's always been a problem because it's part of our humanity and our flawed state, but it's even more of a problem now because all of the institutions around us are throwing, you know, gas on this fire. Well, it was always smoldering. The seeds were sown a long, long time ago, but now we've got a forest fire, um, literally and figuratively, because all of the, you know, the media and political parties and um, special interest groups are all weighing in and taking sides, and it just, it's making it much more, much more than just a one-on-one -on -one situation. We've got like, you know, huge, the, the, the population is divided, but you know, as, as human beings, as individuals, I, the only thing we can do is individually in within our own individual relationships, if we can start playing Mahatma Gandhi and be the change we wish to see, just be different and not write people off, not feel like you have to agree with incendiary statements about someone, even if you, like it, it resonates with your mindset and someone makes a statement about a whole group of people say, no, 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 wait a second. They can't all be bad. They're, and surely they, or maybe that's their truth. Maybe that's all they know. And they're operating with a limited set of facts. And based on those limited facts, that's the conclusion they've come to. But if we just educate them, maybe they could, so who knows? But I think keeping the door open to reconciliation and compromise, I think is important. It's, but it, it's so much easier just to say, yeah, you're right. There are a bunch of, mm. Put them in a bucket. Yeah. Yeah. Because then you can walk on and you have solidarity with your own group. But that's the very problem that we are trying to solve. Yeah. And, and, and it's a classic move, right? You know, to if you have a problem, make an enemy, you know, and, and galvanize people against this enemy. And at the end of the day, and I think it came from you at one time when we were talking, it's just coming back to center the orientation that we have a shared humanity. 
You know, we have a shared humanity. We, we, we generally are, are, are people that, uh, you know, love our families, want the best for our children, know what it's like to, to, to feel sadness, to feel happiness. Um, and, and I'd say the vast majority of us have this shared humanity and connection and coming back to center to doing that. I would like to think disability could be that place of orientation that again, you know, unity through disability, disability doesn't care about whether you're male, female, or what, however you choose to identify, it doesn't care what political affiliation you have, what God you do or do not believe in, where you were born. Disability doesn't care about any of that. And, and so it touches all of us. It's a part of our shared humanity. And that, you know, it's kind of, it, it's a good thing. It brings us together because then we have, a, you know, a, a shared cause and, and life experience and, and can come into that place that, you know, shouldn't be divisive. Uh, that can be all inclusive and, and can be that both and bridge that can get us there. So, you know, I'm going to continue building that as well to whatever extent possible we can. It's so awesome to be in this with, uh, with someone like you that, that recognizes that shared humanity. I want to acknowledge you for that. Well, the privilege is mine. This is, um, and I'm excited to kick off another legislative session with you. Yeah. This was our committee week. Not a lot done, a lot of conversation, but um, it'll be an interesting session. Um, again, what are you looking forward to in this session? What are some like things that we need to be keeping an eye on on the horizon? Any hot topics, hot issues that uh, we need to be, uh, you know, keeping an eye on that we might not have already hit on? Well, we, we've hit on it, but it's, you know, there was a very compelling testimony by um, the Department of Corrections about their struggles to maintain their workforce. They recently closed down five large institutions. Wow not through any genuine attempt at criminal justice reform, but because just the sheer force of, of numbers and lack of compliance with staffing uh, standards, we might see some criminal justice reform come out of this. We might see some lower level offenders released sooner than um, they would have been otherwise. And we might see a consolidation of prisons. So we have a, a smaller prison footprint and lessons to keep those, those beds occupied in prison. I, I do think that the chair of the committee that this um, Department of Corrections um, employee made the presentation to said that in all his years in the legislature, this was the most, I think he said the word, I can't remember the word, compelling or something, but the most compelling presentation I have ever heard. It was gut-wrenching. This guy wow. talked about the employees still in the Department of Corrections having to work 16-hour shifts wow. and not seeing families and giving, you know, so they're asking for pay increases across the board for all of the corrections employees so that they can stop the turnover. They say they, they hire 200 people a month and they lose 400 people a month. What? Wow. It's, the turnover is crazy. They can't, they're, they're competing with fast food industries. And um, so anyway, so I think that, I think that presentation will really get people's attention. And I think we're, we may, as a result, finally see some criminal justice reform so that, um, you know, people with low level drug offenses might not end up having to serve 10 and 20 years and, be able to be released. And I would love those individuals who might have disabilities who are released, I would love to see the Centers for Independent Living be part of turning their lives around and getting them employed and back into their communities. Amen to that. And, and you you well know where, and it's very you know topical nowadays, is that the it's a very interesting time for the workforce and, and employers and people that are seeking or not seeking employment now for whatever reasons it might be. 
you know, my take is the COVID pandemic has allowed people to really look, examine their lives, see what's important, what's not important, seeing their jobs, you know, for what they might be, but also the value that we put in, uh, quote unquote, essential workers. So we saw was, you know, stay at home orders, especially at the beginning. Oh my gosh, who do we still really need working? Well, we need truck drivers working. We need people that are you know, going to be selling us food um, and gas and, and all these other things still to be working. Changing the diapers on people's in nursing homes. <laughs> That's right. And teachers, uh, I think there was this idea that, oh, you know, one day we're just, everything's going to be virtual and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden when, you know, kids are at home and parents are having to still work from home and, and raise kids and, and educate them. Oh, we need teachers. We need daycare staff. We need, you know, we actually need people to, to be tending to our our children, our youth, our future in a way that's meaningful while we do the work that we do because it's going to stymie, you know, everything else. And then, you know, so now we're in a place where, okay, our positions, our jobs as essential workers were important enough for us to put our lives on the lines. Now show us that value through paying us a livable wage with benefits and to give us that quality of life. And, and I think there's a, a very big realization with that on top of our mortality and everything else that have, has gone on. And, and we're, we're in, a, I think, one of the most unique times in my lifetime in regards of workforce dynamics and people making choices for sure. Yeah, no, so I, I do think that that's, you totally nailed it. I think that workforce issues are going to dominate discussions in the legislature this year because they are impacting across the board our way of continuing, going back to the, to the way of life we knew before the pandemic. We there, don't think there is a return. No. So we're going to have to reconfigure yeah. how we set those structures up and hopefully pay people more and give them um you know, a better work environment to work in. I, I would like to think so, to not work towards going back to the way it was, but all right, this is a great time to reset. What could it be? Imagine, re-envision, reimagine the possibilities that, you know, we can build a society and a culture that does pay the value for the worth that people give, the essential workers and all the other things that could come along with it with flex time or being able to work in a hybrid kind of a work structure that allows people to be with their families more or to do the things that they love in their life more and to have that balance because life is short and want to be doing more meaningful things with their life. This is a great opportunity to reset. So I think that would be a really good thing to be looking forward to in the next legislative session to see how we can be a part of making that reset because that's an independent life for everybody you know, to, right. to be able to work towards. So Jane, you usually have accompanied quotes along with your visits with us. <laughs> and I didn't know since it's been a while, have you uh, come with us with any uh, endearing quotes to, to imprint upon us? You know, Tony, I'm going to take back one of the quotes that you just said, because it is one, I, I, I read it recently and, and it really did resonate with me about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is vice giving homage to virtue. Vice, yeah. Vice, pain, tribute to virtue. Vice, okay, pain, tribute, tribute or homage. Yeah. So, yeah. and and I do think that we have seen that um, recently in politics, and it really, um, I think it's just the people who need to hear that message aren't going to hear it. But I think all of us need to recognize recognize that when we see it, because um, we should not lose heart, though. And I will never lose heart because I do think that um, I do think things are going to get better. I think that that proximity to more to our mortality that we've all been forced to reckon with during the pandemic is going to help us appreciate life like life today and lifestyle and the relationships that we have i'm optimistic i think that um we've been given an excuse to do things differently maybe we were just waiting for that excuse yeah. 
and I hope we don't squander the opportunity. There's a great opportunity to do a reset. You know, th there's another quote uh, that comes to mind as we were having our discussion about, you know, kind of the situation that we're all in and, and examining ourselves and our own character, even without judging other people's character. But what about our own character? And it, it's, of course, is a, another stoic quote that I hold dear, uh, especially during these times. So Marcus Aurelius, he lived during the Antonine Plague. It was a 15-year plague that killed many more people, especially young people. In it, uh, he had said and was quoted as saying, a plague, a virus can kill you, but it only does you harm if it destroys your character. Wow. So, a, a, you know, plague can kill you, but it only does you harm if it destroys your character. So to the Stoics, it was worse to live with bad character than it was to die. So for me, you know, that kind of is a, on one hand, could be a darkish kind of quote that I don't get. And, you know, I don't, I'm sure most people would rather, you know, or maybe some people would rather live with bad character than die. But I think it would be a high value virtue to be, you know, I'd rather die than it kill my character. And so for me, mm -hmm. it's an orientation to how am I conducting myself? What are the thoughts that I'm choosing to hold? What are the words that I'm choosing to say? What are the actions that I'm choosing to take? And does that align with the kind of person that I want to be with my moral compass, the character and the person I want to be? Because, you know, these situations can either reveal our character or it can build our character or both, right. you know? So I don't know. I would like to aspire to be somebody that both lives and has good character. And, you know, if I had the choice between the two there, but I, I can now see with more clarity with uh, what this man meant when he said what he said. Right. I just, but again, it takes work. It's, you know, we can't be complacent. This is uh, every day we've got to show up because I think it's when we get complacent that we fall into those default modes right. and we, it, so just, but yeah. Every day, show up. Yeah, every day, every day, every moment. And that's where awareness is so eternal awareness of where our thoughts, our emotions, it's a tall order to be always in that space. And we need to take care right. of ourselves to do that physically, mentally, emotionally, socially. All these other things matter. You know, how we take care of ourselves is really going to also be a foundational piece of that. Well, Jane, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> um, you know, about all these different things and chew it up and uh, just really appreciate you taking the time to come out and, and to share with what's going on in the Independent Living Network, a state of the union that was delivered and crafted in the metaphor of gardening as we enter into fall and harvesting and all these wonderful things. I always appreciate you on the fly running with the metaphors to be able to give better <laughs> understandings to what the heck it is we're talking about here. But more importantly, Jane, you're a person of high value and high character. You've been doing this for a while in a place that certainly challenges one's uh, emotions and intellect and you know, ability to, to communicate and relate with other people. And you, from my perspective, always do it with such a high degree of not just professionalism, but with grace. You know, I learn a lot from you and I'm just so happy to, to see your leadership and in, in, in the Independent Living Network and what you've been able to do for me, for our center and for all centers throughout the state and all people with disabilities that we serve. So you do so much, you touch so many people. So thank you for everything that you do. You guys just dropped me into a really fertile garden. That's all. I'm just thankful for the opportunity because you know how that works. Right place, right time, and yeah. the right people. That's right. We're going to make it through this. We're going to be better for it. And, and I'm very confident in that. You know? and, and I, think, I think we already are. I think we already are. And it's so easy to look at the people that are being loud and being offensive and everything else like that and to, to extrapolate that, that, well, that must be everybody. I think it's so important to not lose sight that there's so many people out there like yourself 
because ignorance can go both ways, right? We can be ignorant of the problems and the issues, but we can also be ignorant of the good people doing the good work who have high value, high moral, and high character. So uh, let's not be ignorant of that. The people out there that are like you, Jane Johnson, thank you so much for being with us today. Tony, any day I can talk to you is a good day. <laughs> well, until the next time, Jane, for everyone, onward and upward. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.